Chapter Fifteen of Rebellion by Joseph M. Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Stevens called up George's room in the morning to ask how she had slept, and she reported, "Well, that is pretty well," which wasn't true, for she had tossed wretchedly through the night. By carefully brushing and buying a shirtwaist, she managed to measurably freshen her appearance though she reached the office with tired eyes and hectic splotches beneath her eyes. Al was there before her, waiting with white face. "'Georgia,' he began miserably, "'I've been hunting the town for you. Where have you been?' "'Alone.' "'You've frightened us half to death. Mother's sick over it. You can have Jim in the house or me, but not both of us.' She would give him no more satisfaction, and he was turning away angry at her obstinacy when Mason came up to greet her. "'Good morning.' "'Good morning.' Al quickly divined that here was the man. It was written in the way he looked at her, and in George's sudden sidelong glance at Al to see if he saw. "'I'd like a word with you,' said the brother to the lover, tapping him on the shoulder with studied rudeness. Now. Stevens didn't understand the situation, but he was properly resentful and lowered at the stranger. In these subtle days of commerce, fingertips on collar-bones may convey all that was once meant by a glove in the face. "'My brother, Mr. Stevens,' she explained. They did not shake hands. Mason was not quite sure from the young fellow's expression just what might happen, but he was sure it had better not happen right there. "'Let's get out of the office, and you can have as many words as you want,' said he. Georgia arose to go with them. "'No, don't you come,' said Stevens. "'I think perhaps it would be better.' "'But it wouldn't. You stay here,' the man answered with great positiveness. She sank obediently in the chair, to the disgusted amazement of her brother, and let them go alone. "'Were you out with her last night?' "'Yes.' The lad sunk his hand to his coat-pocket, his wild young brain aflame with violence and romance and vengeance and the memory of Moxie's sweetheart's uncle who had slain the despoiler of his home. Stevens was near death as he knew it, but he never batted an eye as Al reported later to Moxie. "'I knew it damned well. She said she was alone.' His hand tightened on the automatic, pressing down the safety lock, and he pointed the gun so that he could shoot through his pocket and kill. She was, after eleven. I left her then. Prove it. You've got to, insultingly. Go look at the hotel register for the name of Miss Georgia Talbot. Al grunted. Here was a concrete fact, subject to verification, yes or no. All right, he vouchsafed curtly. If it turns out that way. But one more thing. Keep away from her after this altogether. Understand? Al shot out his jaw and swung around his pocket with the barrel pointing straight at Stephen's middle. He looked just then a good deal like a young tough delivering a serious threat, which he was. Stevens shoved his derby hat back and laughed. If you think you can run me around with the pop-gun, guess again. I'm going to marry Georgia, and you're coming to the wedding. He stepped right up to the gun and tapped Al sharply on the shoulder. Understand? 
It was perhaps a chancy thing to do, for the lad had worked himself into a state of self-righteous anger, and his vanity was savagely exalted by the sensation of putting it over on a full-grown man to his face. But Stevens had acted instinctively, as he frequently did in stressful moment, and his instinct played him true this time. "'She ain't allowed to marry again, so you keep off the grass,' he answered loudly. But his voice broke, and shot up an octave as he took his hand from his pocket to clench his fist and shake it in the other's face. Whereat Stevens knew he had him, and answered quietly in his most matter-of-fact business tones, "'That's for her to say, and she's said it.' He smiled. "'You know she's free, white, and twenty-one.' Al, not sure just what his next step ought to be, walked away, probably to consult with Moxie, muttering as he went, "'Well, remember, I warned you.' Stevens returned to the office, and explained the incident briefly to Georgia. "'Oh, the kid was excited at first, but I reassured him.' While they were talking, the old man rang her buzzer, and asked her to have Mr. Stevens come in. A dark, heavy-browed, much-dressed gentleman was in the old man's office, introduced to Mason as Mr. Silverman. Mr. Silverman deserves a paragraph or two. He was said to be a Polish, a Russian, or a Spanish Jew. But nobody knew for sure or dared ask him, for he didn't like it. At sixteen or thereabouts he came to the company as an office-boy, and in two months was indispensable. At thirty-seven, owing partly to the conscientious performance of his duties, and more to his earnestness in pulling feet from the rungs above him, than stamping fingers from the rungs below, he was elected to a position especially created for him, to wit, executive secretary to the president of the Eastern Life Insurance Company of New York, which gave him everything to say about the running of it, except the very last word. Perhaps once a quarter he was reversed, and always on some extremely important matter involving the investment of funds. This galled him beyond measure, but he kept it to himself. At the last annual election he would have presented himself as a candidate for president, or at least for first vice-president, with power to act, but after sizing up the way the proxies were running for the new directorate he knew that crowd would never stand for him so he squelched his own boom for the time being, and waited. The title was reconferred for the fifteenth time upon a charming but delicate plutocrat of the fourth generation of New Yorkers, who was compelled to spend his term health-hunting in European spas, where Mr. Silverman took delight in sending him, for decision, a copious stream of unimportant but vexatiously technical questions, which must have disturbed the invalid's serenity for he had entered the company at the top, and didn't know detail. Mr. Silverman himself settled the more important matters, as there wasn't time to send to Europe and wait for an answer. Whenever he reached for a stronger hold, he had an incontrovertible excuse, and he got to know Mr. Morgan personally. He was stocky, with ample room for his digestion, and like most fighting men he had a good thick neck that carried plenty of blood to his head. His unpleasantest trait was his shame of race, and his most agreeable one an understanding love of music. 
His only exercise was strong black cigars, and everyone on the company's payroll dreaded his seemingly preternatural knowledge of what was going on. "'Mr. Stevens,' said he, "'sit down. I have heard of you.' Then, to allow that pregnant remark to sink in, he turned to Georgia. "'Take this, please. Mr. W. F. Plaisted, General Agent in Charge, S.W. Division, Eastern Life Insurance Company, Kansas City, Missouri. Dear Sir, please furnish the bearer, Mr. Mason Stevens, with whatever information he desires. He is my personal representative. With kind regards, yours truly, Executive Secretary to the President. That is all. He nodded to Georgia, and she departed. The old man pussy-footed after her, leaving the other two together in his private office. "'You are to take the nine o'clock train tonight for Kansas City to prepare a report for me on why we aren't getting more business in the town and our competitors less. Here are some letters from New York to certain banks there which will admit you to their confidence. Find out all you can about Plaisted and his office before you go to him. Send me a night letter to my hotel every night as to your progress.' Use this code. He took a typewritten sheet of synonyms from his pocket. Should you cross the trail of another investigator for the Eastern, you are not to reveal yourself to him. This point you are to bear in mind. He paused for an answer. Yes, sir, said Stevens. Your expense money will be liberal, and mind, no talk, not even a hint to your best girl. I suppose, of course, there is one. Mason smiled, but did not answer. I am told you are not married. No, sir. Perhaps it is just as well. Women are to live with, not to travel with, and you are still travelling. Mr. Silverman lit a fifty-centre, and then, being a natural-born commander, topped off his instructions with hopes of loot. Good luck, young man. You're shaking hands with your future on this trip. Mason came from the interview consecrated to the task of getting the goods on Plaisted. Going after him was like going after ivory in Africa. Landing a prospect was as tame, relatively, as plugging ducks on the Illinois River. For Plaisted had been a big man in the company in his day, though getting a little old now. With solid connections through Missouri, Kansas and the Southwest, if he fell, he'd fall with a smash. Mason rather fancied that in company politics he could see as far through a grindstone as his neighbor, if it had a hole in it. He knew that there was a hidden but bitter fight for control of the business between the old New York society crowd who had inherited it and the younger, abler men under the leadership of Silverman, who had grown up from the ranks. He knew that his own boss, the old man, lined up with Silverman, but that Plaisted had delivered the southwestern proxies in a solid block for the New York ticket. He therefore inferred that Mr. Silverman didn't feel strong enough to remove Plaisted without a pretty plausible reason, and that he was being sent to Kansas City to find the reason, and failing that, to make one, which, as it turned out, was precisely what he did. He set out on his mission with as little compunction as a soldier who had received orders to shoot to kill. For, as he told himself, surely Plaisted had also pulled down men in his time. Life is a battle. Therefore, is it not well to be with the conqueror and share in the cut? 
if he could now make good with Silverman, and, more especially, convince him that he was a live one who would keep on making good, the Jew would certainly recognize him in the reorganization. He had visions of tooling along the macadam in his Pano Six, to a vined house in the suburbs, hidden by tall trees, where, in a trailing gown, Georgia would walk through her flowers to meet him, with a small hand clinging to each of hers. Plasted had now become, to all intents and purposes, his competitor, and going after your competitors is the life of trade. As for Mrs. Plasted, if there was one, who was she against Georgia? End of chapter 15